This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on clinical decision support and patient safety. Here in Walters, my name, I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. So this is a different type of podcast. We usually do disease-based topics, but today we're going to look at the subject of looking things up. There are concerns that junior healthcare professionals do not use decision support as they don't see senior staff using it. There are also concerns that seniors don't use it as they worry about looking things up in front of people. So a complex one to work through. To help us with this, we have on the line Dr. Tom Foley, consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist with expertise in digital health. Tom also led a review of embedding the use of clinical decision support using a learning health system. So Tom, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is a learning health system? Hi, Kieran. It's really nice to be here. Uh, well, I, I suppose a learning health system is a n- new way of organizing our existing health systems so that we can learn from the experience of patients who've been treated within that system in a more systematic way. Um, and there's a, a generally accepted framework for learning health systems, and that is really that it takes place within a kind of improvement cycle. And what we really like to see within a learning health system is that we're collecting data about what's going on at the front line, that we're turning that data into actionable knowledge, and then that we're reapplying that actionable knowledge back to the front line. And obviously, there are lots of ways uh, to do that. And often, the focus is on generating knowledge in the first place. And you know, there's a lot of work done on research, audit, service improvement projects that really gather lots of data, make some sense of that data, and generate some knowledge and some really useful insights. And then sometimes it stops there. We might publish a paper. We might do some presentations um, to our colleagues. And we sort of just expect that that knowledge will then be reapplied at the front line. And, and often we find that that's not the case. And the difference with the learning health system is that we try to close that loop by finding new, more effective ways to make sure that the knowledge is reapplied um, at the front line. And that's, I suppose, where things like decision support systems come into their own because they give us a new way of applying knowledge in a very timely and targeted fashion right there at the front line where the knowledge needed and when it's needed. When you say say timely, what, what do you mean? How quick do you want an answer to your clinical question if it's in a clinical setting? Well I suppose that's that's the key thing that it's in a clinical setting and you know there are lots of ways that we um, take on board knowledge, and I suppose it starts with our clinical training um, and the you know the lectures that we go to and the books that we read as as students in all all clinical professions, um, and then we go through our training where we load ourselves up with some more knowledge and experience and skills, um, and that's great, and and that's a great way of of, of uh, you know of, of passing knowledge on, but it, it is limited because. You know, we can't possibly learn everything. And I think medicine um, and all healthcare professions now are more about how we 
access knowledge, how we appraise the value of particular knowledge, how we keep up to date new developments and how we apply that to help our patients. Um, and it's more about that than it is about learning textbooks. Um, and in the specific example of a clinical setting, um, we really need the knowledge there and then. We often don't have time to go away and do a literature review or even to read a systematic review or even to download and read a guideline. We need knowledge specific to the decision that our patient has to make right in front of us, and we need it almost instantly in many cases. Great. Thank you. Um, fantastic. So, so, so let's move on to kind of practical examples. Um, so, Tom, you're a senior doctor, and say you're with your team, and you have a question, and you don't know the answer to it, a clinical question. What do you What do you do? Okay. Well, I suppose, Karen, this is a fairly common uh, thing that happens, and uh, you know, I'm, I think fairly relaxed with my team now. We've been together for quite a long time, and there, any notion that they had that I had all the answers is long since gone. Um, so, you know, they're used to me telling them that I don't know the answer. And um, I, I, if I don't know, I'll often ask the team. Sometimes if we're in a, in, a, in, a, in a meeting with the patient, sometimes the patient will actually know the answer before uh, the clinicians know the answer. Um, and sometimes it's a, it's a kind of a training environment. I'll, I'll ask the people who are with me to go in and find out the answer and to bring it back to me. If it's a, a if it's something that we need to know right there and then, um, wouldn't be uncommon for me to take out my phone and to look it up, um, and or for someone else in in the team to do that, um, and and I think it's great that we can be relaxed about not knowing the answers, and that's that should be, you know, um, a normal kind of experience for any clinician. I look back though when I was. More junior and when I was training and, and I, I suppose it didn't always uh, feel as easy to admit that I didn't know something and sometimes I didn't know even what I should know and what I shouldn't know and what was acceptable to know and acceptable not to know and it can be much more difficult for, uh, for, for more junior clinicians to be open about what they don't know. Thank you yeah and the, the culture that you describe how did you do that? How did you generate that culture, Tom, so that everybody feels comfortable? I know this is a, a tough question. Well, I, I suppose your question implies that I actively set out to create this culture, but the reality is that this is the only culture that we can really work within because no one does know all the answers. Um, and we have to be accepting of that. And you know, if we want to avoid um, people taking unnecessary risks with patients, then then the the only way forward is to accept that we don't always know and to to ask uh, other people and to say, do you know what? We need to stop and look this up, work this out, or ask another expert or get some some help. And I suppose just by doing that repeatedly over time, um, it becomes accept acceptable within a team or all of the members of the team to do that. And I think that's an example of where something can be modeled maybe by senior members of the team and then become um, an acceptable behavior for the whole team. Okay, thank you. And what do you think the, the barriers or the challenges to looking things up 
are? Well, I, I suppose it's important that um, we know where to look things up, um, that we know which sources of knowledge we can trust. Um, it's important that we have access to those um, tools and those sources. Um, and a big barrier is time. It's important that we have the time to look things up when it's appropriate to do that. Um, and, and I think there's a barrier that you hinted at in your earlier questions around the cultural acceptance of not knowing and the, I suppose, the impact that that has on um, clinicians' professional identity and how they see themselves and what they see their role as. Um, and, and I think we have to get past feeling that we have to have all the answers, and I think that can be that can be a barrier in itself to looking things up. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned a number of different things there, including kind of technological barriers, if you like, um, so, so that you have access. Um, do you use apps, or would you? But what's what's Wi-Fi like at the uh, organization where you work? Uh, well, the Wi-Fi is Wi-Fi is patchy where I work. I have to say, and that can be a challenge. Um, but you know, I, and I'll often rely on my own personal internet connection, um, and obviously that can also be unreliable. So, um, I, you know, I would use a range of apps and websites to get the access to the knowledge that I want. And I suppose I have well-trodden paths. Um, to the knowledge that I need, because it's often knowledge in in a in a similar area, and I have sources of knowledge that uh, that I would trust. Um, and I suppose it's more difficult when it's topic that I haven't had to look up before, and I don't know what the trusted sources are. Um, so it, you know, there's a range there, and sometimes you just have to be a bit slower and a bit more uh, discerning when it's something that you're not so sure about. Okay, thank you. And to come back to the subject of looking things up with patients or in front of patients, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a a physician who said, yeah, I'm comfortable with looking things up, but I, I wouldn't look things up in front of, of patients. Um, and um, he, was, he was younger than me, means that he was, by definition, very young. So what would you say to, to somebody like that, Tom? I, I first of all, I would say I can understand that feeling, and I've had that feeling, um, and and I think that's very common. And I think we worry about the confidence that our patients have in us, and we want them to feel like we know what we're talking about. By extension, that we know what we're doing. Um, and one way, I suppose, to do that is to appear as if you know everything, but you know. Our patients are not stupid, and they realize that no one does know everything. And I think they can actually, in some cases, lose confidence in us if we seem to be talking about things that we don't actually have the knowledge about, because um, often our patients uh, will know more than us in some cases. And, and, you know, they are the people who have to live with these conditions that we're trying to treat, and often they will have done a huge amount of research. Um, so I think 
not looking something up, making proclamations that aren't supported by evidence is possibly the fastest way to lose the confidence of your patients. Beyond that, I, I, I think it, it's fine and it's helpful to look things up with patients, not to look things up in front of patients, but to look things up with patients uh, and to explore ideas and thoughts and questions that patients have uh, with them. And to be honest that we're exploring it and we're always learning from what the patient brings to us also. Um, someone once said to me in relation to clinical decision support systems um, that they love having a sat-nav. They always use their sat-nav when they're going somewhere new, but they don't use their sat-nav to drive to work every day. Um, and I think it's a bit like that in clinical practice as well. I think there are things that we should know and that we will know and the patients will expect us to know. And then there are things that are outside of our normal clinical journey. And um, I, I think it's fine and it's responsible to look those things up. Also, with patients, I think a, a really nice way of doing it is to give a patient something that they can take away to help them make a decision. And it can be a lot to take in in a clinical consultation, often when we're providing a lot of verbal information or even showing people things on a screen. And I think there have been many studies which have showed that patients retain only a small amount of what the clinician actually says within a consultation. So I think it's really important that we give uh, information sheets and other artifacts like that that the patient can take away and can make sense of and can ask questions about later. And I think using those sort of printed um, resources can be a really nice way to look something up together. You know, and I know on BMJ Best Practice, there are a lot of um, uh, resources for patients. And it can be really helpful to print some of those out and to go through them with the patient in the clinic. I think that can be a really nice way of doing it. It doesn't feel like you're saying, I don't know what I'm doing or what I'm talking about, but it's a way of um, passing on knowledge in a, in a, in a richer um, way than just talking at someone. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That That's very helpful. Let's move on to role modeling behaviors more broadly and is there evidence that role modeling actually works that when people see a senior doctor behaving in a certain way then the the juniors or other members of te the team will will follow their their lead is, is there evidence for that i wonder yeah there is it's important to say at the start that um role modeling isn't the only way to pass on behaviors and attitudes and practices and knowledge um, and there are times when role modeling isn't the appropriate way to do that sometimes what you need is direct education or incentives or even um, regulation or whatever but um, there is evidence that role modeling um, is a really effective way of of passing on those um, skills and attitudes and professional behaviors um, and it's a recognized method of behavior change um, and also of culture change and, and often is a, is a really key way in which cultures are developed. And I think apart from the evidence, I think we, we've probably all felt it 
ourselves in our own professional lives where we've joined a team and quickly found that we change our behaviour to match goes on in that team and that can be a positive experience or negative experience but I think it's definitely something that we've all felt um, and it's 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 a very powerful um, behaviour change method. Yeah, so, so it's interesting. I read the literature about role models and I found a lot of it is about bad role models. People who are kind of not good communicators and not good team players and they seem to have a an deleterious influence on their on their juniors so i'm going to ask you an impossible question now tom which is more effective good role models or bad role models well i think we've all um experienced both and i think it's unusual to have a role model that is entirely good or entirely bad. I think we're all a mixture of good and bad in terms of a role modeling. And I think maybe the negative role models are more memorable. Um, and, you know, because it can be such an unpleasant experience and it can create such a dissonance in your mind between what you think you should be doing and what you're being influenced to do within a particular team. And I think maybe that's why so much attention on negative role modeling because it because it feels awful to be on the receiving end of that um, and it creates a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and makes a workplace really unpleasant whereas I think positive role model is often less noticeable and it's something that just um, fits with your beliefs and values and reinforces them and um, helps you to um, move forward and become a better clinician. And I suppose positive role models don't always get the credit that they deserve for that. I suspect maybe they are more powerful, even though negative role models are more noticeable. Okay, got it. Thank you. Um, and and I guess we're, we're also kind of talking about hierarchies and breaking down hierarchies. Any tips on that? I know you've been kind of talking around this subject, uh, but any further tips on this that you haven't mentioned already? Yeah, well, I think you're right, and it's an important point. Hierarchies are really important. I mean, a lot of the role modeling that, that goes on is between peers and between people within different hierarchical structures, you know, and I can think of times when you know, I've seen uh, nurses or other healthcare professionals that have been hugely important role models and some of the role models, the most important role models that I've had in my career. Um, but when it's happening within a clinical hierarchy, within a nursing hierarchy or within a medical hierarchy or some other profession, then I think it, it, it can be particularly powerful and it can be difficult to resist um, and to behave separately. And I think sometimes it can be impossible to behave in a way that uh, doesn't fit with what the senior people in your hierarchy are doing in that moment. So, for example, if you find yourself on a ward round and you want to look something up and you were ridiculed for looking it up or whatever, then it might not be possible for you to do that in that environment. But it is possible 
to go away and look things up and to do that sort of research separately from that. So, I mean, it, it can be resisted at the individual level to some extent, but not always entirely. And that can be really stressful. But I think there's a role for organizations here as well to start to um, do something about some of that sort of negative role modeling, particularly in relation to looking up knowledge and all the rest of it, because I think most people would now accept that it's a fairly antiquated approach to healthcare to say that you should be looking things up if you don't know the answer. You know, so I think there's an onus on um, healthcare provider organizations and training organizations to be collecting feedback. And if those role models exist within their training and learning environments, then they should be. Um, helping to do some fairly robust role modeling themselves to change that. Yeah, thank you. And and I remember years ago being at a stroke team meeting and the stroke um, team members, often allied healthcare professionals would be asked for their comments and often they'd preface their comments by saying, I'm not too sure if this is right, but I think. And the stroke physician would stop them and say, can you please stop? saying, I'm not too sure if this is right. Just tell us what you think. I'm really interested. You probably are right. Um, and he kind of slowly made progress over time, I think, getting people to kind of speak up and and let them let everybody know their thoughts. Do you find that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real, a real issue. It's an issue within professions, um, within hierarchies that you've mentioned difficult for um, juniors to feel that they should speak up unless they're encouraged. It can also be difficult for people who feel sort of imposter syndrome and things like that. And often the people um, who are least confident to speak up have the most considered views to share. Um, and you know, if they're not encouraged, then that creates situations where we see harm coming to patients and risks being. Um, being manifested um, and it can happen between professions as well I think where you know where there's this idea that one percent one profession might have a monopoly on expertise about a particular uh, subject and we have to guard against that and I think it's nice um, to say to people you know to, to encourage them to have more confidence in their views but it's not the whole answer and I think it can often be even more powerful after a comment is made to really acknowledge how valuable that comment was. And I think those sort of approaches and through um, praise and showing respect for the comments that are made um, can also be even maybe an even more powerful way of achieving that. Okay, thank you. Um, last question. Um, how do you train looking things up as being good for patients, but also good for professionals? Any thoughts on that? I think it goes back to this point about um, sort of business we're in. Do you know what I mean? We're in, we're clearly in a knowledge business and I think maybe there's a traditional view that it's a business of stuff in your head with as much knowledge as you can at a point in time and then practicing for the next X number of years with that information stored and dispensing it. You know, whereas I think what, what we're what we really want to be in is the business of helping patients to find the information that they need to make 
the decisions that are important to their lives. And I think when you look at it that way, the only way is to be looking things up. And often, um, the patient's priorities are not what we would expect, and they're they're often completely different. And you know, the preferences and outcomes that maybe we see cited as standard, say standard outcome measures for a particular condition, might not actually be the things that are important to the patient in front of you. You know, they may be um, concerned about other things, or when it comes to side effects, it might not be the side effects that you think are most troubling. It might be, you know, some rare side effect that someone has read about that you've never actually seen in practice and don't actually know the mechanism for, or, or something like that. And and in those cases, you have to look that up. And I think it's fine. And I think that's the patient feel that they've been listened to. You say to them, well, that's not a common side effect, or that's you know not the thing that we usually associate with this condition. And, and let's look it up together and let's have a think about what that means and what it means for you and how you feel about it and how that affects the decision that you're about to make about your care. You know, and I think it's clear then that it is positive for the clinician because you're always learning and it's positive for the patient because they're getting the answers that they actually want and need. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. I think that's a good point to, to end it on. And thanks to everybody listening. We hope that this has been helpful. We hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to improve both quality and safety of care. If you want to find out more on specific diseases, please click on the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice. Thank you once again.